Lord God, the very fact that we can come before you, our Father, in prayer is a demonstration of your grace. The very fact that we have the privilege to call you our Heavenly Father with all of the intimacy that is packed into that word is a measure of your grace. Lord, we are a graced people, a people who have been given much that we do not deserve, a people who have not just been given things, but who have been given a person through whom, Father, we have everything. We thank you, Lord God of heaven, that you sent your son, the perfect example of your grace, the one who accomplished your grace on our behalf, and that, Lord, you have awakened us in your grace by the power of the Holy Spirit to comprehend and, Lord, to embrace the gospel of your Son. Lord, I pray that you would use your word today in a mighty way in our hearts to make us not only understand but to appreciate and apply your tenderness, your steadfast love to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is not an overstatement to say we owe everything to grace. Not just forgiveness from God for our sins and our relationship with God in his blessed presence, but our election unto salvation, our strength and growth unto sanctification, our success in the Great Commission, and even our preservation until the very end. In fact, the very breath in our lungs this morning is a measure of God's grace, as is the rock-solid certainty that all of God's people will one day arrive safely home with Him. I hope that as you have listened to God's Word taught and proclaimed in this place from week to week, year to year, you have begun to recognize that grace is neither cheap nor modest. It is not cheap because it was purchased through the costly blood of the incarnate Son of God Himself. And it is not modest because it does not merely remove the consequences of sin from a believer, but it also removes the power of sin from over that man, woman, or child who embraces Christ, while also strengthening them to perform great feats in his name. Indeed, God's grace does not come as a slow trickle, but as a tidal wave whereby his goodness constantly rushes upon us, his undeserving chosen ones. We owe everything to God's overflowing grace. Paul's first letter to Timothy is about promoting godliness in the house of God. Last week, from verses 1 through 11, we saw that godliness in the house of God demands healthy pastoral commitment, whereby godly pastors charge God's people with his word that they might be warmed over with genuine love. And this week, we consider the place of grace in the Christian life particularly how we should respond to it and depend upon it. And I have two exhortations for you this morning from this text of Scripture, verses 12 through 20. Number one, we should display gratitude over grace. And number two, we must fight our battle by grace. 
Exhortation number one, we should display gratitude over grace. Verses 12 through 17 begin with thanks, and they end with praise. Verse 12, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Verse 17 says, to the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul was thankful to Christ for ministry strength. If you look up just one verse from verse 12 to verse 11, you will find the Apostle Paul mentioning that he himself had been entrusted with gospel ministry, a ministry which springs from the glory of the blessed God himself. To be entrusted with something like that was no small thing. In fact, it was a colossal responsibility. Paul was entrusted to be the authoritative messenger of good news from God, telling town after town that Jesus Christ had been crucified for sinners and resurrected unto glory as Lord and King over all things. Imagine that, town to town, telling people that kind of a message when all they are in those towns is pagan and a bunch of legalistic Jews. That's not a trust that a weak man could handle. Furthermore, Paul also provided additional information about his ministry in this chapter from God. In verse 1, if you recall, he writes that his apostleship was by the command of God himself, implying, if you think about it, that it was incumbent upon him to obey. In verse 5, Paul declares that the aim of both his ministry and Timothy's was to charge people, which is to preach to people with power from on high so that genuine love might issue from their divinely purified hearts. And in verse 8, Paul reveals that a man with his task, just like a man with Timothy's task, must know how to rightly divide the word of truth and only use God's law lawfully. Dear friends, can you imagine the weight of this kind of a ministry? How could a weak man ever hope to carry out such a ministry? And so in verse 12, Paul expressed gratitude for strength from the Lord. He says, I thank him who has given me strength. Christ Jesus, our Lord. Friends, Paul was no superman. He was flesh and blood, weak and needy, able to be tempted and defeated just like you and me, and yet he had been given strength. And this was a strength that came from above and from which Paul learned to draw from more and more as he went on in ministry. For instance, in one of my favorite texts in Scripture, a passage that's often quoted, often misused, he says in Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul had learned through suffering and through the teaching of the word on his life, to endure and to take on all things through the strength that God himself had supplied him. And for all of this wonderful ministry strength that the Lord had given, Paul was exceedingly thankful. 
And Paul recognized in our text that he was utterly undeserving. In verse 12, he declares how Christ had judged him faithful, meaning, I think, that he had proven himself to be competent and loyal. And also how Christ had appointed him to his service, showing the high task that Paul had been entrusted with. He was ordained to serve the Lord in apostolic ministry. But recognize that on that Damascus road in Acts chapter 9, if you're familiar with that text of Scripture, the Lord Jesus did not reveal himself there to a man who had already proven himself as a faithful follower. Nor did he commission a man there who had carefully served him for many years. Instead, Christ Jesus shone down upon him in Acts chapter 9 verse 4 and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus shone down from heaven and he spoke to a man who was persecuting him and his people. Saul, whose name was later changed to Paul, was not a faithful friend of Jesus Christ. He was the fearsome foe of all of Christ's people. Paul, the apostle, in verse 13, he owns all of this, doesn't he? He says, formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. He refers to himself, his, his former self, as a blasphemer, which is one who defames or denigrates God and his name in some way. It is a terrible sin to blaspheme against God. Paul also confesses that he was a persecutor, honestly admitting that he had once persecuted and even harmed Christians, God's precious people. And he expands on this by calling himself an insolent opponent. That is a very strong term, which is a man whose own religious arrogance leads him to violence against other people. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, it says that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison and we also learn in the book of Acts that he even held the coats for the men as they stoned God's righteous man, Stephen. Paul was utterly undeserving of God's gracious strength for ministry because Paul had been God's enemy. Let that sink in. Let the gravity of that sink into your minds. He was worthy of nothing, though he received everything. Paul was a recipient of mercy and overflowing grace. He received mercy, in verse 13 it says, because he acted ignorantly in unbelief. Now this statement has tripped some people up when they've read it. When verse 13 is only given a quick glance, one might begin to presume that Paul is somewhat letting himself off here even making light of his former sins against the church because he was acting out of ignorance of the truth and in unbelief towards God. But that's not what he's doing here. And I think the context bears this out. This verse is one excellent example of why it's so important to read Bible passages in their context. Throughout this letter, Paul challenges Timothy, if you recall, to boldly charge the false teachers in that church at Ephesus to stop their false teaching. 
these false teachers were professing believers, at least at one time, but who were undermining the good doctrine of Jesus Christ, for they were devoting themselves to errant, sinful teachings. In chapter 1, verse 3, he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And then at the end of our text, verse 19, he speaks of some of these individuals. He says, holding faith in a good conscience by rejecting this, rejecting faith in a good conscience, some have made shipwreck of their faith. There are these individuals who are teaching false things in the church because they had rejected sound things of faith and they had made shipwreck of their own faith in Jesus Christ. When Paul says in verse 13, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. He's making a contrast between the sins of these false teachers and his own former sins. He's telling us that though he formerly acted in ignorance, it was without faith in Christ. And it was unlike these false teachers who had been taught the truth about Jesus and who at least at one point claimed to embrace him in faith but who were now sinning by proclaiming harmful, false doctrine. Paul's saying, yes, that's who I was. By the way, it's, it's not like these guys that I'm going to be talking about in this letter, Timothy. Paul is not letting himself off here. He's, he's making a contrast between who he was before Christ and who these men are who have said they believe in Jesus, and yet they're acting and teaching in this way. But the marvelous thing here is that though Paul was who he was, verse 14 tells us that the grace of our Lord overflowed for him with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Like a deluge of water, God in his kind favor overflowed towards Paul in such a wondrous way that faith and love were actually found in him. The one who persecuted the faith because of God's overflowing grace had faith and love in him. God's grace overpowered Paul's own rebellion. It mastered his pride. It, it mastered his self-righteousness. And it even mastered his covetous heart. God took this spiritually dead man who walked around blaspheming and persecuting God's people and he made him alive in Jesus Christ. Only God does things like that, and he does it by showering people with his grace. God graced Paul with faith, for he was made able to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And God graced Paul with love, for Paul was given an affection for God and for God's people, an affection which made his spiritual heart begin to pump for the very first time, a heart pump that will last for all eternity. And this brings us to verse 15. Where we finally learn of God's reasoning for such grace. Paul, the chief of sinners, was saved by Christ, the savior of sinners, to be an example of God's grace for sinners. This verse begins with the words, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Paul will use this same language a couple of more times in this letter. And it seems he uses it to provide some added emphasis. He's about to say something very true and very important. Christ Jesus, he writes, 
came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Dear friends, this is why Jesus Christ came into the world, to save sinners. Jesus Christ did not come into this world to be an exemplary moral figure. Jesus Christ did not come into this world to be the political man that we look to for an example and how to conduct ourselves in public life. Jesus Christ came to the world with the foremost reason of dying on the cross to pay the sins of sinners. Jesus looked down upon me, a lustful, covetous, selfish man who wanted his way in everything. He looked down upon me and because of nothing good in me, he loved me. Jesus came, he shed his blood on the cross in payment for my sins, washing them away, crediting to me the righteousness of God so that I might be saved. And God has done this in the person of Jesus for you. If you will embrace him, the work of Jesus Christ is applied to you. He came to die for sinners. Friend, if you're a sinner, Jesus Christ came for you. If you'll admit your sins and agree with what Paul is about to say and recognize the provision that God has given to you through his son Jesus Christ, you will be saved, sinner. Non-sinners, my friends, non-sinners are not welcome to come to Jesus. Non-sinners are not welcomed to come to Jesus. Only sinners are welcome to come to Jesus. Jesus says in Matthew 9, verse 13, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. My friend, if you are a sinner, if you recognize your fallen condition before God, that in your very nature you are fallen, and in your acts you are fallen, if you come to Jesus Christ for forgiveness, for salvation, for transformation, he will give it, because that is why he came. Let no one here leave this place not knowing that Jesus Christ came and died for you, a sinner. And Paul, who was a great sinner, displays a most humble, wise theology with this truth. Paul, just like you and me, could not possibly know the inner minds and the deepest hearts of other people. Indeed, the person who Paul knew best was Paul himself. And what Paul knew about himself in light of God and in light of his son Jesus Christ is that he himself was rotten to the core. That he was a sinner by nature. That he was fallen as a descendant of Adam, the very first man. And that he had committed countless acts of rebellion against the God of heaven and earth. He called himself, verse, in verse 15, because of this reality, the foremost sinner meaning that he saw himself as the vanguard of the fallen human race, that he believed himself to be the chief, the first, and the worst of all sinners against God. Now, I don't believe that Paul was giving us anything akin to false modesty here. This was a man who had encountered Jesus and who was made to realize just how far he himself had fallen short of God's glory. He doesn't know my heart, he didn't know Timothy's heart, he didn't know anybody else's heart, but he knew his own heart. And when he looked at his own heart, he said, well, obviously I'm the worst of all. Paul knew his own heart, and he knew his sin, and this made him name himself as the foremost or the chief of all sinners. So why would God save a guy like that? 
Why would God save a guy who blasphemed? Why would God save a man who persecuted his people? Why would God save a man who was an insolent opponent who even used violence against God's people? Why would God save a man like that? Verse 16 tells us. It says, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul was shown mercy by God, And had God's grace hit him with wave after wave after wonderful wave so that he might be an example to many, many others. This word example in verse 16 refers in the original Greek to something like a model or a prototype. It's something that you look at and then you replicate. Well, God demonstrated his profound mercy and grace towards Paul in order to show to many people after him just how merciful and gracious he could be so that he might replicate his goodness over and over and over again. See what I did with Paul? I can do that in you. That's why. Jesus Christ did not destroy Paul. Instead, Jesus Christ showed his perfect patience and redeemed Paul. And by this, he made Paul an example for all who would believe in Christ for eternal life. Ah, dear friend, Jesus Christ showed mercy and grace to Paul for you and for me. He did it so that you and I could look and say, hey, here's a man that blasphemed the name of God, a terrible sin against his law. Here is a man who was an insolent opponent and who was a persecutor of God's people. Can you imagine doing that? It's it's bad enough to be violent towards people, but to be violent towards God's precious people, how rotten is that? And then to see God shower him with mercy and grace. And then we look at ourselves and we say, oh, but I know my heart, I'm the foremost of sinner. Oh, friend, yes, you are. And Jesus can cover that and his grace can overshower that. That's the wonderful example here of Paul. And Paul's humble theology led him to happy doxology. At this point in the letter, it's almost as if Paul can't contain himself. And so he pens the words of verse 17. It's it's like he says, hold on a second, Timothy, And let's just consider for a second what I just wrote. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He can't help himself, and he pauses for praise. This is a doxology. It's a formulaic statement of praise towards God. And in his joy, Paul writes some Wonderfully true things about the Lord. He calls him, in verse 17, the king of ages, which references the eternality of God and his reign both in this age and in the age to come and in any age whatsoever. Paul calls him immortal, which means that God cannot be corrupted by death and that God cannot be diminished in any way. He also declares that God is invisible, agreeing with the teaching of the entire Bible that God not only is spirit, 
and therefore cannot be seen by human eyes, but God in his essence is perfect in his holiness and is therefore beyond the capable sight of created being. If they look upon his holiness, they will die. That's the message of scripture, which is why Jesus says in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus says, you can't look upon the Father. His holiness is too great. But look what the Father has done. He has set me, the second person of the Trinity, and here I am in flesh with skin and bones. And I'm going to go to a cross, and I'm going to pay for your sins. You're looking on me, Jesus Christ, and you're seeing God. You can't see the Father in his spirit, but here I am. The invisible God has taken on flesh. And finally, Paul confesses that he is the only God. There are no other gods but the one true God. Let's attempt to apply this. Some of you have never shown gratitude over grace because you've yet to regard yourselves as the chief of sinners. You've never grown to appreciate God's mercy, his wonderful steadfast love, his amazing grace over you because you have yet to regard yourselves as the foremost of sinners. Now we can say a lot of good things about God. There's an ad campaign that tries to say nice things about God right now. There's lots of things that we can say about God, but first and foremost, we have to understand that we are sinners against him. If you're not willing to understand that by nature and by action, you are a sinner against God, then you're not in agreement with Paul and you don't understand the overwhelming measure of God's grace. It is one thing to show kindness to people who are okay, who are kind of friendly to you. It is an altogether different thing to show grace to enemies. And my friends, the only people who understand and can embrace the grace of God is people who recognize that they are God's enemies. Friends, we are sinners. Each of us should be able to say, I don't know him, I don't know her, but I do know myself, and what I know is I am the foremost. Admit that you are the foremost sinner, and then, friend, look to the foremost Savior, because he can save even the very worst. But for you saints in Christ, would you consider how undeserving you are before him? Would you consider just how little you deserve from the God of heaven? In fact, would you even consider that what the only thing you deserve from him is, is judgment? how undeserving you are in your sins and your rebellion. And then with this, would you also consider how much mercy and grace he has been providing to you through his son, Jesus Christ? Would you recognize just how much of a bridge he had to build in order for you to be with him? Do you recognize the size of the chasm? And then do you see the extent of this bridge? Grasp that. Consider that. That is at the very heart of Christian worship. And then consider why all of this was given to you by him. Why did God do that? Why did he bridge that chasm? Why did he do that for you and for me? Yes, because he loved us, but also through us to show to others a shining example of just how good and merciful and gracious he is. God's grace towards me is not meant to stay right here. God's grace towards me is meant to pour out to other people. It should zoom out of our eyeballs like rays of light. We should be people who have been graced and then who shine in the grace. And consider how much praise you owe to him. 
how much there should be moments throughout your day, seasons in your life, and an ongoing spirit in your heart that says, to the king of kings, the king of ages, immortal, invisible, only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So that's our first exhortation. Gratitude over grace. Secondly this morning, we must fight our battle by grace. In verses 18 through 20, these verses mark a return to Paul's previous theme that he left after verse 11. And it reveals where Timothy needed to look for strength in his pastoral ministry. Now, not many of you here are pastors or elders. But yet this message resonates to us because the same provision of strength to Timothy is, is the same to us. It's the same provision. In verse 18, he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Timothy had been entrusted with an important charge. If you recall from verses 3 and 4, Paul challenged Timothy to exhibit the God-given authority connected with faithful biblical preaching to challenge the false teachers in his church to stop it. Timothy had the high task of preaching God's word clearly and boldly so that his church would be conformed to God's image and so that these false teachers, these false men, would be rebuked and halted in their teaching. In verse 11, Paul spoke of how he had been entrusted with the gospel of God. And now in verse 18, he, he reiterates how this same message has been entrusted to young pastor Timothy. Timothy was now to take the gospel truth which had been handed to him by Paul and he was to pass it down to others like a track meet where the baton is passed from one man to the next, from one gal to the next, passed on from one person to another. In fact, we learn from Paul's next letter to Timothy that he was to take this even further and he was to go deep with some men as he passed on the baton of faith. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, a very important passage for our church, Paul says, What you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In other words, Paul was given a trust with the gospel to be faithful with it. And now Timothy was given that trust with the gospel, and he was to be faithful with it. And Timothy was to take that trust of the gospel and take it and invest in other individuals, other men who could also go and teach others with the gospel. It was to spread through a ministry of replication. Well, this charge was in accord with God's word about Timothy. In verse 18, he says, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. Evidently, Paul and some other spirit-filled men had previously made some declarations over Pastor Timothy, which pointed to his future usefulness for gospel ministry. Perhaps it was something like an early ordination council of some kind, where these men who were endowed with a special dispensation by God in that day to at times speak prophetically, 
they uttered important, truthful words about Timothy and his coming ministry. Chapter 4 helps us understand this a little better. In chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Something prophetic was said over Timothy, whereby he was encouraged, he was strengthened to know that he would have some success in his ministry, and then he would stick with it faithfully. Boy, I wish every man of God could have such promise. A parallel to this may also be found in Acts 13, when Paul himself had the Lord's word uttered over him with regard to his own ministry. In Acts 13, verse 2, to the church at Antioch, it says that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Take these two men, Barnabas and Saul, I've got a work. I've got a calling upon their lives, set them apart. They're going to go in my name. What this means, I think, is that Timothy was given truth statements from God himself, which declared his role as a gospel minister. And Paul meant this to greatly encourage Timothy as he pastored. He's saying, Timothy, do you remember what was said about you under the inspiration of the Spirit? Do you remember the gift that was declared, how you would be a faithful man of God? And on that basis, Paul challenges and encourages this young pastor. Timothy was to fight the good fight in light of that truth. Understand, he was to fight the good fight of faith in light of that very truth. Notice the wording of verse 18 very carefully. Timothy had God-inspired prophecies made over him, and by them, it says, he was to wage the good warfare. So he was to wage the good warfare based upon the foundation of the prophecies from God that were uttered about him. Timothy was to wage the warfare of the Christian faith because of what God had said to him by way of these prophecies. He was to fight the fight of Christian faith and faithfully minister the gospel of Jesus Christ by remembering what God had already said. In other words, God, God's word was to be the foundation upon which Timothy fought and worked and served the Lord. God had graciously equipped him with his word, and now he was to fight the Christian life with that word. Now recognize, Paul does not send him here back to the law of Moses to feel again the weight of its condemnation. Timothy may have been discouraged over these false men, and he may have even wanted to give up. That may be the very reason why Paul was wanting to write this thing to him. But Paul doesn't send him back to the law like those other teachers around his church did, where he would find no power for the fight. Instead, God reminds Timothy of the good word of God which had been said about him. Essentially, Paul reminded Timothy about God's gracious promises. And God's promises accompanied by the Holy Spirit, were to provide this young man with the strength necessary for the fight of faith. Make no mistake, my friends, the Christian life is a fight. It is a struggle. It is a battle. It is a war. Paul used that kind of language many times as he instructed Timothy in these letters, and it would be very good for us to take heed. Christians are soldiers. 
who fight a battle every day against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and they do so in God's strength. That's not some old concept from fundamentalist days because of camp songs that were sung. That is a rock-solid biblical reality that we must consider. We do not fight this war with weapons of flesh, but instead we fight this war with the weapon of God's truth. I love what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. In 2 Corinthians 10, verses 4 and 5, he wrote, The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. We don't fight with the flesh. We fight by destroying strongholds with truth about the knowledge of God. We minister to people after we've ministered to our own hearts by taking the truth that God has provided about himself and applying it to them after we've applied it to ourselves. And as we fight with the weapon of God's truth, we hold faith and we hold a good conscience. Meaning, I think, that as God's promises warm us and his grace and truth encourages us for warfare, we find strength to hold fast in our faith in Christ and to live with the same humble conscience of Paul, who though he saw himself as the chief of sinners and promptly admitted it, he also happily praised God for his wondrous mercy. He didn't walk around in feelings of condemnation over what he was. He walked in the grace of who God had made him. In other words, we will walk strong in our faith and in our freedom if we walk strong in our salvation. And lastly, Paul provides a warning for those who fail to fight the fight. At the end of verse 9, he says, By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Some people not clinging to the truth of the gospel and not clinging to God's many precious promises that he's given to us in his word have made shipwreck of their faith. They've ended up in spiritual disaster as they have ruined what once looked so promising. And this, my friends, is a warning for us Christians. He gave it to Timothy. If our faith is genuine, then we will persevere to the end. That is true. But for those who claim Jesus and yet turn away from the gospel and abandon God's gracious promises for their strength, oh, please heed this warning here. Shipwreck is coming. If you take the anchor and you remove it from the rock that is Jesus Christ, you, my friend, are in danger of shipwreck. Paul provides Timothy with two examples by way of reminder so that Timothy here would carefully heed this message. He talks about Hymenaeus and he talks about Alexander. Two men by these same names are also mentioned in 2 Timothy and they may very well have been the same guys. We don't know for sure. There's a lot of guys named Joe out there. I would expect there's a lot of guys named Hymenaeus out there. 
Hymenaeus is mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, and it says this. Avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. If this is the same Hymenaeus, he and this other guy named, named Philetus, they have been injuring, upsetting the faith of other people because they've been going around saying that the resurrection's already happened, which means when you die, there's no hope. They've been ruining people's hope in Jesus Christ. Men who at one point embraced Jesus and declared him to be their Savior, their Lord, are now corrupting his people by declaring things that simply are not true. Alexander, he's also mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, says that Alexander, the coppersmith, did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. He strongly opposed our message. Alexander, if it is the same Alexander, was a man who at one point seems to have embraced Jesus, but he came come to the place where he began to teach people to live back under the law of Moses. And Paul eventually concludes that this man, his message is so bad that he actually strongly opposes the gospel message itself. And Paul says in verse 20, our text, that he handed these men over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. That's strong language. I won't go too deep into it. I'll leave that for a time when we preach through the Corinthians. But this is church discipline language. And it likely means that these men were removed from the local church and left to the realm of Satan and to this world so that they would learn to honor God with their words and teaching. They were cut off from the people of God so that they would learn not to say and teach such awful things. This is the kind of ministry that Timothy was to take on. It's the kind of ministry that rebuked certain individuals who taught such poor, errant things. And the warning here is clear. Hold fast to God's word, Timothy. Fight the good fight, Timothy. And don't go the route of two men like that. My friend, some of you who claim God's grace may be in danger of spiritual shipwreck. Your eyes are on many things, and your heart is directed toward many places, but your focus is not on God's grace. Your minds are absorbed in the things of this world, the politics of our day, the challenges of our day, the selfish desires in your own heart. They occupy your minds rather than having the grace of God and what he's accomplished in Jesus and his promises which have an ongoing place and effect upon your life be the thing that you consider daily, you've allowed other things to occupy you. Oh, friends, this is the time where you should be aware that you are in danger of shipwreck. Oh, you might not be like a Hymenaeus and tell people that the resurrection of Jesus has already happened, and you might not be like an Alexander who will one day oppose the gospel message right to people's faces, but guys, usually it happens by people just beginning to fizzle out. And what seemed at one point like a fire begins to all of a sudden become just smoke, and then it's gone. There is a real danger of shipwreck for you, my friend. 
in our culture which is telling you every single day to embrace other things, to go in other directions, and to not believe that old, antiquated book. If you hold to that type of thinking, if you begin to embrace it, understand, my friends, you've taken your eyes off of the cross of Christ. Put your eyes back on the cross of Jesus Christ. Recognize the grace that God continues to provide so that you might avoid that kind of a disaster. Turn from this and fight your battle by grace. Turn from those things and recognize that it's by remembering what Christ has done, by prayerfully asking God to accomplish his promises in you, by communing with him in the fellowship that he has graciously provided for you, that you get to walk with him and know him. That is to walk in grace. To live in fellowship with his people, the local church, that is to walk in grace. But to begin to pull yourself away from these things puts you in a place of great danger of such disaster. Don't do that. Swim in grace. To fight the good fight, you must keep a close eye on God's promises. And it's here where I leave you. God's grace has overflowed to you through his word, the Bible. So if you're going to swim in his grace, then my friends, you must swim in the Bible. Now I'm aware that there are a lot of sermons that end with pray more, be in the Bible more. That's not the heart here. The heart is that you would see that God, the God of grace, has provided you precious promises that are enabled to strengthen your soul for ministry and life, to make you grateful and make you strong as you go through it. But you must go to his word. You must seek out his promises. You must prayerfully rejoice over them before God. And as you do, backbone begins to get tougher. Bones get stronger. Muscle begins to develop. And though your outward body might fade away, your spirit becomes resilient to the temptations of this life. So yeah, I'm going to be the pastor that ends a sermon with saying, read your Bible more. Of course, swim in God's word. Let's pray. Oh Lord, I thank you for the truth of the Bible. Thank you for what it commends to us, namely your amazing grace. Thank you for Jesus, your son, our savior. It is only because of him that we can come before you. It is only because of him that we are made right before you. It is only because of him that we have fellowship with you. It is only because of him that we have strength from your spirit. It is only because of him that we will one day stand before you as complete as you have promised. Oh Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ. And we pray this in his precious name.